Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mo Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. So today we're talking about money. Money. Which we've actually talked about quite a bit. Um, it is a huge... It's hard to overstate how important money is to everything. Right. Everything. And when we're talking about women and feminism and equality, money is huge. There are so many issues you could think about. Um, the, the pay gap, the investing gap, the, the pink, pink tax. tax. And then today I learned there's a gender pay gap in allowances. Boys make more money oh, in their allowances. That makes and sense. Girls do twice the work for less pay. Yeah. And boys are likelier to get an allowance. I almost flipped my dang desk when I read this. <laughs> I was so mad. That's not okay. No, it's not okay. And the more I thought about it, the more I really campaigned hard for an allowance in my family because I, I, as the listeners know, I really wanted to save a bunch of money. I had a big concern about, I don't know, not having any money and not being able to afford a place to live. So I I pushed really hard for it. But right. a lot of the stuff I ended up getting paid for, I was doing anyway. Oh, yeah. We didn't get allowance. We were just told, you get food. <laughs> <laughs> well, I only got it for a couple of weeks, and then they took it back from me. Um, but it's it was just kind of the outrage of it because my brothers, I was doing stuff and not getting paid for it. But my brothers would get paid if they would do the same thing. That is not okay. Right? Um, women are also 80% more likely to be impoverished when they retire. And then we've talked about all kinds of things that impact women's finances more than men's, like um, caring for elderly or sickly parents, mm -hmm. um, child care in general. Divorce impacts women's finances right. more than men's. One study found that a woman's household income drops by 41% after a divorce and 37% after being widowed compared to around 22% for men. And then another study I, I found said that in the United States, uh, compared with the average single dude, the average single lady's net worth is three times smaller. Mm -mm -mm. That's significant. Mm -hmm. And all of this is a huge part of the conversation when we're talking about feminism because, yeah, it just impacts everything. It impacts your, your ability to move freely in the world, start a company, whatever it might be. Um, so we thought we would bring in an expert today. Um, I believe as you hear this, it is the new year, the new decade. Happy New Year. Yes. So what better time than to talk about money? Right. Hopefully it's less of a, you know. Stressor? Fiery du dumpster <laughs> of a year. Happy uh, New Year. Wow, we really don't have high hopes for 2020. No, I do have high hopes because 2019 was so horrible. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it won't be as much of a dumpster fire. Uh, as here is hoping. Yeah. But uh, to start out the year in a hopefully better year, yes. we have an expert to talk about finances. So let's go ahead and get into our interview. So my name is Caroline Snyder. I'm a financial coach and I work primarily with entrepreneurs and freelancers, um, but really with kind of a, a wide range of people. I say that I'm a financial coach for feminists. And the reason I say that is mostly to make sure that 
certain people don't reach out to me and ask for help who I don't want to work with. It has been a very good tactic. (laughs) Um, And unlike a kind of traditional financial advisor, I don't do any asset management. So I'm not controlling anybody's money. Um, And people only work with me for a limited period of time. So I work with people to help them gain the skills, knowledge, and confidence they need to reach their specific financial goals. And that could be something that takes three months of working together or six months or nine months, but whatever that time period is, it's based on those goals. And when we're done, we're done. And what led you to this career? Yeah. So very roundabout. I uh, really hated (laughs) money, finance, math, business, kind of the whole shebang for most of my life. Um, So I started out my career as a social studies high school teacher. And while teaching, I had, I'll say, the opportunity, because I think of it as that now, but I didn't at the time, um, to teach financial literacy to teenagers. And at the time, I was very much in credit card debt, um, terrified to look at my bank accounts, would cry a lot when it came to tax time every year because I was just so confused and overwhelmed. Um, So not exactly like poster child for who should be teaching anybody else anything about money. But through that experience, I realized, one, that it's not as hard as I thought it was. Um, And two, if I'm looking at it from a perspective of an educator, then all of a sudden a lot of things started falling into place. Um, And when I had been looking at it in the past as uh, just kind of like cut and dry, this is what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do, and this is how math works, those things weren't falling into place for me. It just didn't make sense. There was no connection. Uh, So it never had worked. So after teaching financial literacy for a little while, I ended up deciding to leave the classroom go back to grad school, get my MBA. And then I worked in traditional financial advising. So asset management and um, benefits consulting for a while before starting my own coaching business. And I think about coaching now as this like incredible marriage between education where I'm very much still a teacher and helping people gain the knowledge they need in this kind of taboo area of the world, which is money. Um, And I love taboos. (laughs) (laughs) So do we. Uh, I I know. That's one reason I was very excited to be here today. (laughs) Yes. And we're excited to have you. Uh, We found when uh, we were researching this before we got started, we found one survey that uh, found that 61% of women would rather talk about dying than talk about money. Why do yeah. you think that is? Why do you think we're so nervous when it comes to talking about money? Totally. Well, so I think there's a couple of things that are happening all at once. One, we are very much taught to not talk about it. So um, one of the things I work on with clients a lot is is their money narratives, their own personal money narratives, so like why you think the way you think about money and then how do we modify those to make them be more healthy and helpful for you in this part of your life. And one of my own personal money narratives 
um, came from just being shut down a ton as a kid anytime I asked questions about money. So I have this one very specific memory of asking my dad how much he made. And he yelled at me. Oh. Um, and I like that was a moment where I was like, oh, this is a completely off-topic conversation, even amongst family, even amongst like loved ones and people who it's okay to talk about other things and ask questions about. Um, and that's really common. Like that experience that I had is not special in any way. So we societally and often in our um, families are taught to not talk about it. That's, that's part of it. We are not taught any basic knowledge in schools. So as of, I think it was 2018, it might be 2017, but I'm pretty sure it was 2018. There are only 17 states that require financial literacy as part of the course. Um, and actually I was teaching it in Louisiana and they got rid of that while <laughs> I was teaching. The state of Louisiana removed that as part of the curriculum. Um, and 17 is the highest it's ever been. So if you're currently in school in one of those states, you might be getting a little bit of the knowledge, but there's no way for us to know, like, what does that actually look like? Is it someone like me who's in a bunch of credit card debt and doesn't know what's going on teaching you financial literacy? Because that's not going to be as good as someone who actually knows what they're doing. Um, and we don't know how long it is, right? It might be like a week long and you might be learning how to write a check, which is not terribly helpful information. <laughs> so humans just naturally are uncomfortable talking about things that we don't feel that we're good at, um, especially when we're told simultaneously that it's something that you should just implicitly know because you're an adult. So, you know, think about like hashtag adulting. Um, money is part of what we're just expected to be good at. And maneuvering in society, we're expected to know how to handle it, even though we're given no resources and told to not ask questions about it. So it makes sense that we don't want to talk about it. It's scary. And we feel dumb when, in fact, we, it's okay. Like, it, there makes no sense for us to have known this stuff before you ask questions. Absolutely. And I feel, I'm actually really fortunate because I've, I've grown up with friends who were very open about money um, and I'm learning now that that was, I was very lucky um, and it's pretty rare, but I do yeah. think there, what I've experienced is either I'm afraid I'll get judgment for making too little or too much. So that's something totally. I've had to, to face. Totally. Well, and if you think about a workplace environment, so there are often rules put in place by management and HR that says that you cannot talk about how much you make with your colleagues. So there's just institutional systems in place to keep us from talking about it. Um, so then you have no idea, right? It's like, oh, am I killing it? And I not able to handle my money well and I make so much more than the other people around me or am I not making what they're making? And like, you just don't know and you're not allowed to ask, which is bonkers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is ridiculous. So this might be 
a total long shot if you if you don't have this information readily available, then don't worry about it. But I was wondering if you could give us a brief, very simple history of women in finance and then sort of an overview of where we are today. Yeah. Um, I won't have like perfect dates for you. That's okay. I did. Um, although I will say that I'm currently writing a book on this. Oh, cool. And there will be perfect dates on that. Um, if I ever finish it, writing a book is a Tough. long process. A I've surprise. learned. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I had this like a, a moment a couple years ago. Where I was like, yeah, I can just like knock that out in like six months. Like, no, sure. completely, completely insane. Um, so this is actually true pretty much globally. There are exceptions to this rule, but most societies are controlled by the men in our lives, right? And that has been true historically. So women have been systematically held, um, put in a place where they're not able to gain power. And one of the ways they're not able to gain power is that they're not able to own property or um, wield money on their own, right? And like that has just been true for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, in the United States, it wasn't until the 70s, and I want to say it's 78, but I could be wrong on that year, that women were allowed to get credit cards on their own. So until then, they were not, we were not able to get loans, basically, um, to then have money to do whatever we want to do with it without having either a husband, father, brother co-signing onto that process. So if you think about that, like that is not that long ago. That mm -hmm. would be my mother who would have had that experience. Um, and if you're trying to make big changes in your life, often you need access to capital, right? Like if you want to start a business, if you want to change careers, if you want to move, most people don't have savings set aside to be able to do that easily on their own. Um, and most people don't have kind of family money or outside help to be able to do that easily on their own. Obviously, there are exceptions to both of those things. Um, and that's where credit becomes really powerful. I'm not saying like credit card debt is a great thing, but being having access to credit gives you the ability to make changes in your life. And that really didn't happen until the late 70s for women in this country. Um, at this point, the statistics are still pretty depressing. So only 25%, I'm just going to kind of throw out one, a couple ones that I know off the top of my head that make me angry. So you can be angry with me. Awesome. Um, <laughs> only 25% of women founders seek funding, seek outside funding. And of that 25, only, I think it's like 30, 31% actually receive funding. Um, which ends up meaning that women founders get about 2% of VC venture capital funding total. So like wow. that is a crazy wow. tiny amount of the pie that women today are able to access. And again, like, yeah, accessing that money is not the end all be all, but accessing that money means that you're able to grow in a way that without that money, you're obviously not allowed to grow. 
Um, in the U.S., the ownership of wealth has changed pretty dramatically. So it was just a couple years ago. I think it was 2017 or 2018 when women now are control more than half of the wealth in this country, which is exciting. Um, but worldwide, that's really different. So it's like $70 trillion of wealth, something around that, that women control versus like $150 trillion that men control. Um, so clearly, like, while the U.S. is about 50-50, that's not true in other parts of the world. And in some places, it's almost nothing that women control. Um, and I don't even think that like 50-50 in the U.S. is, it's just like a bare minimum right? It's like, well, there's also more women than men. So we should control more of the wealth than men can control, than men control. Like just that's the math that should be happening. Um, and just because we're controlling more of the wealth doesn't mean that we're using that wealth, um, to really further causes that are important to women and impact women on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I also I'm wanted to ask a question. And, some other sad statistics. Yeah, well, I'm about to ask another sad <laughs> question, so <laughs> here we go. Okay, if, you if you don't have the answer, great. that's fine to it. But I know one of the things that is slowly being talked about a little more and more is we talk about um, when it comes to domestic violence and abuse in situations, oftentimes finances is one of the main reasons that women yeah. remain with their partners or um, those who are yeah. you know, in, in partnerships because of that, and there's this control. Um, can you talk a little yeah. bit? about what you've seen, the changes that need to be made, even like a conversation of what we need to have in realizing this is a form of abuse. Yeah. I actually think that's a really good link back to what I was saying about access to credit. Um, So in abusive partnerships, even if technically you were allowed as a woman to get a credit card on your own, it doesn't mean that you will be able to do that um, or have a bank account on your own that isn't linked to your husband. Um, so one one thing I think about, and then I'll, this is a little tangential and I'll come back to what your actual question was, but <laughs> if you have um, like spending power on a credit card that's in somebody else's name, so let's say like I have a credit card and I add my husband to that credit card. I can see everything that he buys. If he logs, he has to log on with my login to see anything. Like it doesn't go onto his login, even if it's through a bank that we both have. Um, And so if you're in an abusive relationship and the way you have access to money is all linked to your partner, then that person is going to be able to see and control everything that you do with finances um, and you won't be able to see it separately. So like you can't see what they're doing, they can see what you're doing. So that puts anyone in that situation at a disadvantage because now we're talking about it can't be done electronically because the partner is controlling all of the money. Um, So you have to be able to kind of sock away actual cash to be able to leave that relationship in a way that 
like feels safe, right? Like money is power, money is safety. Um, so you have to have money to be able to get out of that or have access to other people who have money who are going to be able to help you and protect you. Um, and in this current society, like, do either of you ever have cash on you? I have no cash Randomly. on me. <laughs> she has a lot more cash than I do, typically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I, like I'm, a, I'm a financial coach. I live in L.A., which actually is a place where, like, cash is kind of helpful because parking is stupid and <laughs> you have to valet regularly, which is very annoying. Right. Um, I could go on a 10-minute rant about <laughs> that. But, like, I don't ever have cash. Like when I have cash, it's because I split a check with someone and they randomly had cash and I decided to pay for it and they paid me back in cash. Um, so actual cash is hard to get. And so it becomes really important that people are able to have their own independent control of their money. Um, I think your question is like, what do we do about this? Is that right? Just kind of like what you see and the changes that we can be making or we can um, focus on and trying to bring awareness to that as being a, a type of abuse. Yeah, so I think it starts, there's kind of two things that I have in my head going simultaneously based on that question. So one is like, how do we prepare women to be able to control their own money and use money to get out of situations that are abusive? Um, and that starts at an early age. That starts in family homes, having conversations. That starts in schools. Like I'm a huge proponent. Every single person needs to learn financial literacy in schools. And it cannot just be learning how to write a check because that is not helpful. <laughs> um, so that's part of the piece of the puzzle. Is like we have to be empowered from a young age to be able to use money in a way that lets us get out of situations um, that we should don't want to and should not be in. The other piece of the puzzle is actually having the conversation that we're having right now and recognizing that as a form of abuse. So knowing that this is part of the problem is important because it's not actually a conversation that we have a lot of the time. Like how often have I heard this and just like, well, you know, you're being abused, like then you should get out of it. And Right. That is just really simplifying a very complicated problem. Um, and not only is there an emotional aspect of that that makes it really hard to get out of an abusive relationship, but there's actual like legit logistics. So I'm not an expert in this area and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in this area, but legislatively there needs to be ways to make sure that women who are leaving abusive relationships have access to money to be able to stay out of those that relationship. Because I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I know that many times when women leave, they end up back in the same situation again. And a lot of times that's because they don't have access to the money that can help them stay out of that relationship. And you add like kids in there and things get real, real complicated. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that's something I've seen on maybe a um, not as high stakes scale, I guess. But I, as I've gotten older, a lot of my friends, um, their moms have stayed in relationships mm -hmm. they wanted to leave 
because yeah. the yeah. in this in this relationship, these relationships I'm thinking of, the father, the dad, um, had control of all the money, right? And they yeah. felt like there was no way for them to leave. And as you say, in the seventies, that's when right. our parents' generation, my parents' generation, my mom could get a credit card, could get loans. So it's like. Right. Heartbreaking. Well, and and thank goodness my parents' situation was not abusive, and they they are you know a good team together. However, when it comes down to it, my mother was very young um, when they got married, got pregnant very young, and so she. I don't think she ever had a full-time job ever. Um, and part of that is because she also yeah. wanted to stay home with the children, but that means she also had no experience mm-hmm. to get money. Mm-hmm. To, and, but she, and with all of that, my dad was a great provider and all of that, but he was definitely that very much stereotype of head of the household. He maintains all of this. He brings in all the money, and you just figure out how to maintain the home. Um, and so if something yep. had gone wrong, my mother would have been in a lot of, lot of situations, like a big situation of what do I do? Because, mm-hmm. of course, as you had said earlier, many a times they also have the young ones or children that they have to take care of and they are responsible for. And a lot of that, especially mm-hmm. if it is a, an emergency situation, they have to leave all of those different things and they're not going to get money immediately from the partner to yeah. support the kids. That's one more way of controlling right. that situation, if that is the case. And I, and I, again, like I said, my parents were not in that situation, thank goodness. But the fact of the matter is, it would have been a giant nightmare and a cycle, as we see all the time, for her to come back because she could not do it on her own. And I think that's a big conversation yeah. that we, you know, we've all talked about before. Well, not we've all women in the industry or um, those of us in the industry that have seen it or have looked at it know that this is one of the biggest problematic issues that's not being addressed as an underlying issue and as a a way of controlling the situation. Um, So it's the Violence Against Women Act, which I should have already known, um, which was slowly dismantled uh, during this administration. Mm -hmm. And because they are starting to talk more about, oh, you know, it's just a family issue. We don't need to control that, whatever. But it was there to protect things like this in order to be able to call this abuse because oftentimes it's just seen as a problem, a financial problem, and it's individual and not as a group or a a setting or a family setting, and it protected those who are victims, and now it's kind of been dismissed, and it's kind of going back to, well, it's his money. It's their money, so you really can't ask for it if you are the one that left, which is a whole big contention of, so how do we prevent this now that at one point it was acknowledged that this is an abuse of power and and a a manipulation that is abusive to this person and violating their, their rights. Now it's kind of gone back away and it's kind of that conversation of, okay, how do we fix this? How do we look at this? How do we have this larger conversation about why things like this is important? Yeah. Well, and I think this is a very important conversation to have from um, with any partnership when you're dealing with money. So I have a couple clients all the time who are trying to figure out, like, do we combine everything? Do we keep things separate? Do we keep something separate? Do we combine like in this way or in this way? And it gets really complicated. And the truth of the matter is often the easiest thing is just to combine everything, but that is not always the right move. And it's not always the wrong move either to be totally transparent. Like everything for my husband and I is combined. I'm also a financial coach and I'm definitely the one dealing with 
the finances regularly in our family. And like, that's what works best for us. Um, but it doesn't work best for everybody. And I think if you've either experienced manipulation or abuse in, in some way, um, or you just want to make sure you're really maintaining your autonomy and that you're not sure how to protect yourself, making sure that some of your finances are separate is a, a way to do that. Um, and the way each person should do that is going to look a little different. So along that, what would you say are some things to consider when you're coming into a partnership, whether it's marriage or whether it's living together, whether it's buying a house together? What are some advice or some things that you would say to look out for or pay attention to in the process of making a decision to whether or not you're going to combine or keep it separate or how to even do it? Yeah. Yeah. So step one is really having a conversation about what is happening for real. (laughs) So a lot of, I'm going to use just like romantic couples in general, a lot of romantic couples. I wish I had a statistic on this. There's probably some like terrible, not accurate, like Buzzfeed statistic (laughs) on this that exists. But um, a lot of couples just anecdotally, I will say like, don't know what each other's financial reality looks like. So maybe they know how much each other makes. Maybe they don't. Um, But often people don't know how much debt you're in, like don't know what credit score you have, don't know if there's, you know, retirement savings, other investments, family money, like all of those things need to be talked about so that you are coming into the relationship or the next phase of that relationship in a really transparent and trustful way. Um, You know, like getting married and then finding out that your partner has $100,000 of credit card debt, that's pretty rough. Yeah. You want to know that first. I'm not saying you don't marry the person necessarily, but having that knowledge is really important to be able to go into the next phase. Um, So that's step one. Step two is doing some really personal thinking and reflecting. I'm a big proponent of journaling when it comes to this kind of money work on what's going to make you feel best. So is combining everything going to make you feel good? Like why or why not? Is keeping something separate going to make you feel best? Like what are those things then going to be? Do you want to keep everything separate? Um, And then just be aware that there's, (laughs) if it's a legal partnership, so if you get married, um, even if you have everything separate, like that's what feels best to you, kudos to you, that's what it is. Um, Legally, it may not be able to stay that way. So um, in many states, we have what's called community property. And uh, community property means that whatever I own, my partner owns and vice versa, 50-50. So even if you keep things really separately, just like FYI, you may not actually be separate. It might still be 50-50. And that's when, you know, for some people like prenuptials make sense or having a will that's really clear with separate money makes sense whatever that needs to be for you. But doing the reflecting on your own before having that conversation with your partner is really important so that you can walk into the conversation with your partner 
knowing like what your lines are. So saying like, maybe it's, I want to at minimum have a separate checking account that I'm able to keep that has nothing to do with you. And I put money into every single time I get paid. Or maybe that's like where my money comes when I get paid. And then I put money into a joint account from there. We have some more of our discussion around money, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. I did find a lot of studies uh, showing that um, couples who have regular conversations about finances are happier. Right. And I also learned about financial infidelity, which I knew was a thing, but I didn't know the term. (laughs) This is secrecy or dishonesty about money. Basically, lying or hiding something. It could be debt, or you're siphoning off money, lying about how much you make, uh, paying for a secret family, having a secret credit card. (laughs) Well, that would be an infidelity for sure. (laughs) But uh, it said over 40% of the respondents... That's a multiple multiple kinds of infidelity. 40% of the respondents in in the married couples of this survey admitted to lying or hiding something about money, which I thought was pretty shocking. Yeah. Is hiding the same thing as like not telling no, no I think it was or hiding. Or just actually lying about it. Yeah, well, hiding, I mean, maybe maybe you're you're just not upfront about how much you make and you let them believe you make a lot less than than you do. It doesn't have to be outright lying. I think, I think hiding implies that you're manipulating There's in some, some deception. way, shape, yes. or form. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. But I think that word shame is really important because we're... That comes from someplace, right? Right. So um, I regularly have clients who are like, I'm ashamed to tell my partner how much I spent on X. Mm. Um, And whatever that X is, it's often like a category of spending that for some reason they feel really guilty about. Uh, So often clothing and personal care come up a lot in those kind of guilty areas. And I think often those things that we feel shame around are the things that we've been taught are frivolous or like bad to spend money on. Mm -hmm. My personal belief, and I think this is what would make everyone so much happier (laughs) in life, Mm -hmm. is that we just like get rid of all of the guilt around all of this, all the reasons like this category is bad or not bad. And instead it's what do you actually want? What are your values? What's most important to you? If getting a weekly massage is what brings you just oodles of joy, that was a good, I stopped myself from swearing there and came up with oodles. <laughs> um, <laughs> then like, why is that a bad thing? Get your weekly massage. That's cool. As long as you can afford it and aren't going into debt because of your weekly massage, then like, that's great. And it's not the but that illegal shame kind. piece is really yeah yeah that that's really yeah. funny because it brings me back to so on one of my credit cards my mom still has she's like the power person in it oh really so she can see what yeah. you do yes and I've tried to change it and of course it's never worked but I didn't know she was still getting <laughs> like this she has to change it doesn't she she does yeah and she's still getting the statement and randomly she asked me so why do you order so much food at three a.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! 
Whoopsie. Oh, no. Mom. <laughs> I'm a city girl living a city life. <laughs> well, she can see the exact time, too. She just, just, yes. just doesn't just get the statement. Wow. That was a whole level. Well, I'm pretty sure when you order food after a certain time, it's marketed in a, a specific way. This is a <laughs> is late it? night order. Is it? <laughs> no, well, that's a shame factor right there. Let me order when I want to. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, That's a good point, though, that it's not always romantic partnerships. It's, yes. It can be familial as well. I definitely had a moment when, of reckoning when I learned she had, for years, been able to see what I was buying. That panic of, oh, gosh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know, one of the things that I've recently seen a lot more of, or I think the conversation's coming out a lot more of, um, is l- literally having businesses shame people in order to manipulate what people are being paid and act as if you're getting way more than others, so don't you dare tell because you're going to make yourself look bad. Mm-hmm. And then when you start really having conversations, you realize you're all making the same. They just don't want you to ask sure. for more. And I, th- I feel like for women especially, yeah. it's like especially a woman who is maybe climbing the ladder slowly, being really shamed too. Well, you know, you're, you're getting this much. Yeah. Not everybody's right. getting that. Why do you think it's such a big part of... Well, first of all, I think that carries into our own shame factor in working, talking with our coworkers, not wanting to say out loud just in case we're going to shame them yeah, or make them feel bad, mm-hmm. which I like to make people feel guilty when I'm like, I'm a social worker. I make nothing. <laughs> Buy me stuff. But that's a whole different level. That's just a whole other mm-hmm. level of shame for me. But um, what do you think that is the reasoning and why do you, how do you think that may affect or does it affect uh, women more? than others. Well, I think it totally affects women more. Um, I'm just going to speak without any research or data to back myself up right now. All right. Confident that I'm right. Um, (laughs) I think that narrative of being told, like, don't tell you're doing so much better than other people and you don't want people to feel bad, do you? Um, is super manipulative and the people who are doing that know what they're doing, right? Like they know what other people are getting paid and they know what you're getting paid and they're doing that to cover their own butts and to kind of protect the narrative that that company is, um, like has for its, um, what, like employee welfare or culture, right? Like, Whatever that narrative is, the reason why there's that manipulation going is to protect the company and not to protect you as a person. Um, Women, the reason why I say like I'm confident that this impacts women more than men is that women are societally, at least in the U.S. um, and most places, are taught that it's really important and our role to make sure that other people around us feel happy and secure Mm. and safe. Um, You know, we talk about like people pleasers. We're not just like born people pleasers. We're taught how to be people pleasers from a really young age. Um, And that's done systematically in schools and by our parents. So, um, and other adults in our lives. So, when it happens from a company perspective, like the company is kind of being like parental in that situation, telling woman, child in this situation, like don't rock the boat. And people listen, unfortunately. 
Um, and there's a real fear of reprisal too, because if the company has an actual um, kind of like rule in place where you're not allowed to talk about it, and then you do talk about it, there could be repercussions for you, and that's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We did an episode on uh, pay transparency a while back, and it caused quite the kerfuffle. And they let it go up, but it was one of the few times where they've actually intervened in an episode topic that I, right. I did. Yeah. Um, oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> they they it was a very subtle intervention, right? But I knew it was happening. Mm-hmm. One thing yeah. I was wondering if uh, through through your work, if you've witnessed differences in how men and women handle money or maybe just ex- how they're expected to handle money or, or just stereotypes that really impact women when it comes to money? Totally. So transparency, I work with very few men. <laughs> so the men I work <laughs> yeah, with are good. usually usually in a heterosexual couple and I'm working with the couple and in those situations never has it been the man who has sought me out. It has always been the woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, just from a professional standpoint, I'm not doing a whole lot of comparing because I I mostly just have one group. Right. Um, So, you know, just keep that in mind. But the expectations that we put on women, I see all of the time. So there's kind of two that I think come out the most frequently. One is like, you're bad at money um, and you're supposed to be bad at money because you're a woman. And the other thing is like you as woman, and this is especially true with women who have long-term romantic partnerships um, and even more true if you have children, Uh, Women are supposed to be in control of the house along with everything else. And so therefore, like if the money in the family is not going well for whatever reason, then that's your fault. So those two narratives together make no sense, right? Like (laughs) you should be controlling the household and doing a really good job of it. And so therefore you should somehow be very good at money. Simultaneously, you're a woman, so you're bad at money. Um. That's a mind f- Like, I do not know how you're supposed to maneuver between those two narratives um, and do that well. And neither of them are healthy. So the way it often comes out with the folks that I work for, or work, work for, I mean, I guess I do work for, but work with, I don't think of it as work for. <laughs> a weird slip. I should think about that. Um, the folks that I work with is that they're coming into the conversation saying like, I know that I need help and I know that this isn't working well. And I know there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. And that's why I need you financial coach to work with me collaboratively to get us to where I need to be. Um, However, I also have always thought I'm bad at this. So don't entirely believe that I'm ever going to be actually good at it. Hmm. And that is heartbreaking and something that I completely understand because I've felt that way for a long time. It took a lot of school and education and personal work and honestly, a lot of therapy for me to get to the point where I actually trusted that I was good with money, um, even after years of being good with money. 
And I still like, to be totally honest, like I still on my low days, like I have a doubt where I'm like, maybe I'm terrible at this. I'm like, what am I talking about? (laughs) This is not true. Um, But those doubts are really, really ingrained. And it means that people often uh, don't trust what they're doing, even when they're sure that it's the right thing. So for example, like um, you're working at getting out of debt and you're following a plan for how you're getting out of debt. Um, There still may be fear that like, I'm not doing it right or I couldn't possibly keep up with this or something's going to go wrong and I'm going to mess it up. Uh, And that narrative, I just, don't think men get that in the same way. Like, I don't think men are taught as young boys to feel that way, the way women are. Um, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, my school in elementary school. We had a play, and I was immediately cast as the shopaholic, and all of the, the yeah. little girls in the play were, were shopaholics. Who couldn't control their? What a weird play! What it was a weird play. play. <laughs> it was a local yeah, where play. Where did you go to school? <laughs> <laughs> like, Shopaholics Elementary. Like, I have a lot of questions. I was going to say, was it just like, hey, I wrote a play and it's by a fifteen-year-old girl no. <laughs> or a fifteen-year-old boy who says mom is this way or something? This is actually like the third role I ever had behind okay. tree number two, shopaholic number one. So I, I what, moved up. What in the plays world. are you doing? <laughs> like what don't, I did. Okay. I don't need okay. you digging wait, into my. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> is this just like your neighborhood girls got together and did this? <laughs> yes, and we decided we would all be shopaholics. <laughs> you did it after the video of the board game, didn't you? That's right. Mall Madness. Mall Madness. I don't um, know. Uh, oh, I, I forgot about mall madness. Look, I'm that old. I, I was. Oh, it was the man. new thing, and I was like, that's "What credit one. card? Cha-ching. Oh my god! Yeah, no. Okay, that's just me. Cool. cool no, cool, I don't cool, know cool. about that. Go one. find one. I, I, this is okay. Yes, sorry, we, your time. we derailed. What, so you're a shopaholic? Yes, I was just saying that 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 kind of stereotype right. of. You're spending it on, like you were saying, frivolous things, and you can't control your spending. Mm -hmm. You are bad. Oh, see, I grew up in a whole different stereotype because my mother was the coupon queen and budgeted like no other. I will say she was kind of in charge and making sure all things were handled Mm -hmm. in our house. Um, She may not have been the breadwinner, but she absolutely knew what was needed each month, had those ready to go. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, she was, everything was either store brand, the off-brand Laura, Laura, the off-brand Laura Lynn, Lynn. (laughs) and if it was ever a name brand, it's because she had a coupon every time, every time. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, so for me, that's what women Mm. did was clip coupons, which I did. I helped my mother do this, by the way. And I, I had this, Satisfaction of cutting it perfectly on the little dash, yeah, dashes. <laughs> it was, um, but I, I, I never use coupons myself except for like Kroger uh-huh. app on my little oh, card. Those that you can up that you can up- upload, and I don't have to do anything else for it. Sure. But my mother had a whole system, and that's a big thing today. Like I feel like that you see a lot of women. Mm-hmm. That's a women thing. Coupon, yeah. Couponing. Yeah. That's what I've seen more do than anything else. Totally. Do you now, I know you just said you don't do the coupons. Like, do you now feel pressure to 
No, I feel like weird about it. Well? It, it. To me, like I'm like no, I, I because what you are correct. I was one that didn't get a conversation of why it's important to mm. budget and what that looks yeah. like. It just it it just that's how it was. And for me, I felt like I missed out, yeah. which is completely privileged conversation um, that I missed out on a lot of things because we were always cutting corners and trying to save as much as possible. Yeah. And again, this has to, everything to do with the fact that my mom and dad got married very young, had three children, and then had foster kids, and then had me, adopted me. So I had a large family to provide for with one person having right. the main job and neither one of them having anything more than a GED or a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So very, very that kind of level. So for me growing up, I felt a little bitter that I didn't have the piano lessons or like the extracurricular activities mm. or I definitely wore the hand-me-downs, a lot of hand-me-downs. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't take school lunch. I didn't take bag lunch to school yeah. because that was a privilege too, you know, buying these cute little snack mm-hmm. packs. You yeah. know, that wasn't a thing. So growing up after the fact, I kind of felt a little resentful. Lunch, lunchable. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, that was a privilege to me. Yeah. You know, the bo- juice boxes, I didn't have those. Yeah, I remember being in the grocery store once with my mom and like really wanting Lunchables, which are disgusting, by but the way. Yes, like, I absolutely. don't know why I wanted them. <laughs> That's absurd. And my mom was just like, like absolutely not. Like, right. you're going to have your PB&J that you have every single day from kindergarten until right. senior year. Yeah, I know. I definitely got the dollar fifty. Much less money. Yes, $1.50 to go buy my lunch. And I would save that. Sometimes I wouldn't eat lunch and just save it. At the end of the week, I'd buy a diet coke or a soda and something at the end. That was so tricky. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's definitely something that I kind of grew up because I saw that and I saw that as, and again, this comes in the shame factor of having to do all of that, which was brilliant on my parents' part. for me, it was like a shameful yeah, thing. Yeah, they were able to manage everything. Yeah, and able to like provide as much as they did for us. Definitely healthy. I was definitely a healthy kid. Um, but coming back like later, felt that shame and saw that as being a lower class way of living. Poor people living, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I uh, felt like I shouldn't do that. And I still, of course, part part of that is also I am very lax and lazy when it comes to couponing, and I'm just going to go for whatever's easiest mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point in time. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. I love a good deal. Sure. I love a good deal. But at the same time, I don't seek it out like my mother absolutely would. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it had everything to do with a shameful need for me to prove that I'm okay. I can do these things. Sure. I can afford this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that kind yeah. of is a good segue into um, one of the questions we wanted to ask, which is, a huge thing for this show and for feminism is intersectionality. And you've talked about how privilege and background and family dynamics and all sorts of things influence our relationships with money. Is that something you can mm-hmm. expound on? Yeah. So I talk about this a lot. Um, the more financially privileged you are, the less people you often feel like you need to understand money um, yeah. because you just have it. It mm-hmm. just like appears. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think exactly what you were just talking about, like the, when you aren't coming from a place of privilege, it feels important to understand it. But then there's this added, you talked about shame, which I think is an important part of it, but there's also this added, like expectation that you're going to be able to do all of the things Mm -hmm. with a very limited 
income, which is impossible, right? So like we live in a society that's very capitalist and very materialistic. Um, I feel like particularly I used to live in, I lived in New Orleans for about 15 years and then moved to LA a couple of years ago. I'm like, wow, <laughs> the way people decide to spend money here is different. <laughs> um, in New Orleans, it's all about like alcohol and costumes. Right. right. <laughs> I'm on board with that. In LA. And blues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in LA, um, it's just a lot of everything to be totally honest. So, I feel like I just totally derailed my own thought process <laughs> in saying that. But privilege is inevitably part of a conversation about money. And if we pretend like it's not, then we're not doing ourselves or the topic of money or the topic of privilege justice. Um, if you come from privilege, understanding that not everyone just has these things that happen Um is really important and powerful to be able to talk about. So I talk about this pretty regularly. I'm very privileged. Um, I don't have school debt. My parents paid for my school, my um, high school, not my high school. I went to public school, but the college and grad school. Um, I'm a white woman. I'm straight. I have education that has been able to get me to where I am today. I don't have any family help. Like I've, my business has been me bootstrapping my business to make it what it is. Um, but the fact that I don't have student loans means that I was able to take a risk of starting a business and that I knew it would be okay. Right. And very, and the reason I knew it would be okay was because I just didn't have all of those extra costs of having student debt. Um, I'd also already gotten out of credit card debt by the time I started my own business. But that is a privilege that I have and recognizing my own privilege is really important for me to be able to do a good job as a financial coach, but also to be a feminist and like live in the world. Um, so recognizing our own privilege. And then if you're not coming from a place of privilege, to be able to get to a place of privilege financially is going to take more, but it is so crucially important if we're going to get anywhere in the world, right? Like the whole idea of feminism is that there's equality. And right now there's not equality. And the reason I think that there is not equality is amongst people is that not everyone has access to power. And the reason why not everyone has access to power is because not everyone has access to money. And the way we get access to money is through education and knowledge and then strategic action. Um, and I think that is one thing that is sorely missing in the conversation right now. We talk a lot about like legislative change. We talk a lot about um, vernacular. We talk a lot about um, like actual equality with the law. Um, but we don't talk in within society and how we interact with each other, but we don't talk about money. And the truth of the matter is that you need money to get anywhere. I mean, like think about how our current uh, administration has gotten where it has gotten, right? Like right. the reason why Trump was elected is because 
of money and his fame around money. Yeah. Um, Even that, can't he, ignore it. Yeah, he's bad at it. <laughs> like if you see how many times he's filed bankruptcy. He was good at building the fake right. reputation of like, it. Yeah, and which is also why yeah. the whole tax um, returns and all of that, his papers, as not us, but people are asking to see it, and that's such a huge fight. Yeah, because again, I mean, yeah. Not only is there he's accountability, he feels shame right. because it's not what he, right. he it's not what he's touting himself to be. Right, mm-hmm. like for sure. But can we also talk about the fact yeah. that there are people who? So I was just reading uh, an article yesterday in which uh, an NFL star who won a Super Bowl like 2012 was trying to invest his money, which he has money, mm-hmm. but actually a yeah. bank stopped him. Just because he was a big black man, essentially, uh, and saying, assuming oh, that he can't, he couldn't keep up with what their requirements yeah. were for a specific type of investment, and they actually said that to him. Wow. And not only that, not, and it was more of a context wow. of saying that because the man he was talking to, I think, was a black employee, and he was just trying to be honest. He's like, "Hey, <laughs> yeah, these people are racist. We're, you know, we as a company are not going to trust." Uh, people of color, specifically black people. And and just talking about um, this being a black athlete who could afford it, you think about women, women of color who are working their butts off trying to provide Mm -hmm. for whatever, being told, even though you're trying, it's still not enough and we don't trust you based on the color of your your skin Mm -hmm. and because of the inherent racism that will always remain (laughs) seemingly. Um, And hopefully that will change one day. But can you talk a little about that? And and I don't know know if you have any experience or having conversations with people of what that looks like and having the understanding of this is a thing. This is an actual thing. And we need to acknowledge this bias because it prevents people from living, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's absolutely, I mean, it's just a fact that uh, like we, we could anecdote after anecdote after anecdote that Mm -hmm. happens daily um, in all parts of this country. And that is why I'm a big proponent of supporting businesses that support you Right. So going to women owned businesses, going to businesses owned by people of color and making sure that those are the places that you patron. Um, is that the right word that you patron? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That is correct. Yeah. Patron. Okay, cool. Yes, yes. <laughs> that sounded so weird when it came out of my mouth. <laughs> English, the mm-hmm. English language. Oh, I have a hard time um, with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. So, Making sure that this is what I call like voting with your wallet. So as you are gaining knowledge around money and control of money and therefore having more money to be able to use more wisely and more strategically, that we're furthering the cause of equality by making sure that the money is not just going back into the hands of the oppressors, right? So like, I don't know what bank that was that that NFL player went to, mm-hmm. but that bank should not be gone to. Like right. they don't deserve his money. There are other institutions who will be able to provide the same services and do it in a way that doesn't involve racism. Right. Um, and sometimes those institutions are smaller. They're often more local. Sometimes they're not able to do quite as much as the big, I'm specifically thinking of like the big banks of the world. Um, 
But if we want progress to be made, the only way those smaller organizations and companies are going to be able to get to the size where they're doing everything that you want them to do is by you investing in them as um, a customer and as a client. Right. And that's unfortunately, I think, a sacrifice that we all collectively need to make. Um, so if we keep putting money into the hands of the people who are making sure that they keep the money away from everybody else, then, I mean, what, what do we expect to happen? They're going to keep doing what they've always been doing. Right. They've really figured it out. Right. So just out of, I mean, and again, you may not be able to answer this because it is a very specific question um, for a black woman or a woman of color or, um, and I'll say this is, and I, I specify black women because we know obviously that there is a hierarchy and there is a level of racism within people of color as well. And so yeah. that's automatically something that we need to acknowledge yeah. and move on that there is, there is a level within that community and some are more um, ostracized. Than others, and I think Black women yep. are some of the most um, persecuted, essentially, um, I mean, most, of, most discriminated against, right. for sure. Um, so, for yep. a woman who who is of who is Black, who's trying to create a bit or go for a loan for a business, what would your advice to them be in yeah. how to how to search for the best option in trying to propel their business? Yeah. So, looking at. Um, Financial institutions where you already have a relationship, and this is true, I'd say, for black women and also just, like, people in general. This is good advice. So if you're seeking a loan, um, starting with financial institutions that you already have a good standing with. So that may be a bank that you've been with for a really long time. It might be a credit union, whatever that place is, but that being your starting point, um, because even though there's a rubric, right? So like every financial institution that is giving a loan uses some sort of rubric. They're not going to tell you what it is, but they're going to say like, do does this person meet all these requirements? There's also a person who's actually doing that. And there's going to be bias that whether or not they know they're bringing that bias to the table, they are bringing that to the table. Um, and we all do that all of the time, every day. So Going in a place where you already have a relationship gives you a leg up on being able to secure that loan. Um, that's step one. If that place, for whatever reason, is not a good fit, and it might just not be a good fit, not because of who you are, but because they don't offer what you're looking for, then looking for things where you are able to access capital maybe in potentially in a less like um, traditional way. And this is very annoying to say this because this should not be the case. But if you like really feel like you've been, you've looked, you've tried to get loans, you've been denied, um, then going with a less traditional route. So uh, like Kiva.org is an organization that does small business loans. They started out doing um like micro lending in other countries, but now they do small business loans in the U.S. They would be a good one hmm. to be looking at. Um, there is like a crowdsource funding aspect hmm. to them, which 
can be a reason to not do it. Um, but looking at those less traditional sources to get a loan so that you're able to use the capital that you should be able to get. Um, and just to kind of like plug financial coaches in general, and I guess myself specifically too, having an expert in your corner can make the world of difference because often there are some things that you can do financially before seeking out a loan to make it much more likely that you're going to get approved for that loan. And I don't really have like a blanket, this is what you should do. It really depends on like each individual person's financial reality um, and situation. But there's often things you can do ahead of time to make it work in your favor, be more likely to work in your favor. And we have even more to say about finances. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. I was wondering since you've since you've started, as we, we close out this decade, one of the most expensive times huh. of the year, <laughs> and we're entering a new yeah. decade. Uh, are there any Yay. trends that you've observed or or things that you've witnessed? Oh, I thought you were gonna ask her if she had any investment yeah. advice. What should I invest in? <laughs> I put all my money in Disney, okay. <laughs> I am not answering that one. <laughs> uh, and then we all got arrested. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah, I'm like, that's a great way to get in trouble. Um, yeah, there, so I, I, just to end, like if, if we're ending the decade in a positive note, I would say like there's several things that are happening that I'm really exciting. It's exciting. I'm really excited about. So there um, is a general push for companies that we interact with, that we are customers of to be um, supporting the values that we want them to support. And that makes me really happy. So the fact that there are more companies who part of their mission is to do good in whatever way they want to do good in um, says a lot of good things to me about like where our economy is going and the fact that customers and the public are using the power of their own purses um, to push the economy in a direction that we feel better about. Um, so that makes me really happy. And I think that will continue to be the case. Um, I think that the several just like social movements of this decade have helped us collectively talk about things that we're uncomfortable talking about. So like Me Too has helped us talk about um, discrimination and sex and abuse in ways that collectively as a society, we've not ever been comfortable talking about before and people are still uncomfortable with it, but like we're moving the needle. And the more of those things are happening, the more I see people are getting more and more comfortable talking about money too. And it's not just blanket across the board that everyone's comfortable about it yet. And I don't expect that to happen in the next decade either. But as we 
realize that conversations are key to moving the needle forward in any way. I think that's happening with money too. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, yeah, those two things are the things I like hold on to as hope. And really like the more we haven't talked about this too much today, but we've talked a lot about like what we want collectively, where we want the world to be going and like moving towards a place of equality. Um, ideally today, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like moving towards a place like, so slow, but actually getting action um, there. It starts with each individual. Uh, So you as an individual understanding your money and being able to reach your financial goals on your own. And then that just snowballs. I like think about like as an individual, you're now confident and knowledgeable in what you want to do with money. You're then able to impact the people around you by sharing that story and helping them get to where they want to go. And that snowball effect is really real. And I think that is what's going to tip the scales towards women, not only controlling over half of the wealth in this country, but also being able to control the power um, and large institutions and the government and companies. And that's what's going to push equality in a much more quick and real way. Yeah. So I do have some resources. So one, anybody who listens to this podcast and wants to do financial coaching with me gets 10% off of a series of financial coaching. And that series is based on your goals. So the number of sessions we do together. So that's step one. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah. So that makes it a, a little more affordable. Okay. S-N-N-T-Y is the promo code for 10% off. So that's, that's step one. Um, the other, there's a couple things. If you are looking for something that is 100% free and self-guided, I highly recommend what I call money dates and money dates are you setting aside time by yourself. Like 15 minutes is good. You can do more. That's great. But in this money date, Going through your recent transactions, making sure there's no fraud or something that looks wrong because that is real. <laughs> um, and sorry, I've been trying to be very good about this. Yeah, thing. I mean, two is the, pretty good. Yeah, better than I do. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's step one. And then checking in on your financial goals. So first creating those goals. Where do you want to go? creating plans for how to get there. And if you need help figuring that out, I have some articles on my um, the Verity Advising blog, verityadvising.com. That's C-E-R-D-I, advising.com. Um, so money dates, totally free, self-guided, but they really help just getting you comfortable with dealing with money. So like setting aside a time once a week, once every other week to just look at the account. It does help. Um, And then there's a couple books that I love. So The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist is one that I think I like end up reading every year. I just like keep coming back to it. Um, Another one that I've recently been really into is The Behavior Gap by Carl Richards. 
And then a couple websites, blogs that I love. So the New York Times has a your money section. Sometimes it's like actual actionable, like things that you can do that will help. And sometimes it's more just like personal finance stuff in general. And I love that. Um, Financial Best Life is a good blog. So is Making Sense of Sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two podcasts I like, uh, Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn and Afford Anything are both two good ones. And just to plug myself for future months, the <laughs> Financial Feminist podcast that I'm hosting is coming out this spring. Yay. And it'll be all about money. Yes. All free stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So 2020 is not all bleak. See? <laughs> It's not all bleak. This feels weird for it's me to be the po- and I'm, optimist I'm here. I'm personally like not a big resolutions person, but I love that other people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just, what I do with resolutions poorly, maybe I'll do a better job for 2020, is, is I come resolution? up with something that I don't, <laughs> yeah, be better at resolutions. Yes. So like I always come up with something that I don't actually know enough about. So I'll be like, I want to take Pilates and I'm going to do that every week. But like, I've never taken a Pilates class in my life. Mm -hmm. What if I hate the Pilates class and then it doesn't work and then I'm a failure. So that's how I (laughs) often do resolutions. It's bad. Don't do that. Yes. Um, But I love this time of year because I think it helps people feel more comfortable being like, okay, for real, 2020, I don't want my relationship with money to be so poopy. And there are things that I can do. So whether it's getting a financial coach or getting a financial advisor or taking a course or reading more podcasts or doing money dates on my own, like whatever that is, it's kind of a beautiful time that people feel comfortable making changes. And that makes me happy. Again, I'm just going to try to be positive because 2020 is... I I like it. End up on a hopeful upbeat note um (laughs) is there anywhere the the listeners can find you yes so you can find my website is verityadvising.com that's again v-e-r-d-i um fun fact verity my granddad's middle name he hated it um but he's dead so he can't be mad at me for naming my There we go. That. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Rolling that works. in his grave. There it is. Um, <laughs> so I misspelled it to make it, you know, a I don't know there's something where I was like, he can't be like totally mad at me. That's okay. Um, my dad hated his so middle that's name. That's the website. And he and my brother named his son after that. There you go. <laughs> so all the same lines. That's, that's great. I love that. <laughs> I love a good uh, working a name. <laughs> it was kind of the, honoring him, but yet it didn't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little good, like backhanded honor. I suppose. like it. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's the website. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Verity Daily, and my email address, which you can find on my website or my Instagram is caroline at verityadvising.com. And I love chatting about money. So even if you're like, I just have questions, please reach out to me, DM me, email me. Um, I'm always happy to, to talk much to my own detriment, probably. <laughs> it's pretty good for podcasting though. So Great for podcasting yeah. and teaching. Good so there you go. Podcasting. There you go. Yeah. 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 And Not great for like getting the things done all of the time. <laughs> Unless it's podcasting. <laughs> there you go. 
Oh, so true. I'm see, I'm helping myself. I'm moving That's into right. a land where That's right. I'm just setting myself up for success. Mm-hmm. Unlike mm-hmm. Pilates. Yes. There we go. <laughs> Lessons learned. I like all this around. disdain for Pilates right now. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that is um, promo code Sminty. And um, yeah, keep an ear out for Caroline's podcast. And thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Yes, was thank fun. you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. This brings us to the end of our interview with Caroline. It was a delight. It was very delightful, yes. Yes. Loved it. I, uh, I'm feeling a little better. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of th- ways to, you know, better deal with money. And me not too. feeling so shamed. Yeah, I think that is a big, a big piece of it. My 3 a.m. deliveries... I'll I'll reconsider them. (laughs) No, you enjoy that. I'll look at them in a different light, perhaps. Um, Don't let your mom worry about it. It's fine. (laughs) I have to say, in my mom's defense, she was more tickled by the whole thing. (laughs) Hey, at least you're eating food. I mean, that's the... I've said before, one of my biggest city girl spoil is that I can order food whenever. Oh, yeah. And when I go home to my small town, I always forget, not only can you not order food whenever... You can't order it hardly ever. Right. <laughs> Nothing delivers right. to where we are. <laughs> so perhaps she was just uh, so shocked that, you know, Atlanta, you can get all kinds of things very, at 3 a.m. first world, for sure. Oh, yes, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but we would love to hear from from you listeners. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmonnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. Thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can listen to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>